0: Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American Patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth, because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show for Monday, May the 1st. We are in a new month. And we have a new disaster, as Scott Alex just said in the chat. Alexis, sorry, Scott. Folks, it is a, it is a pending and slow-rolling disaster, and hence the topic, when did Noah build the ark? I want to talk a little bit today about preparedness. I want to talk about the upcoming Financial disaster, which looks like it's kind of slow rolling at us, it could be good uh, in in the long run, but I think in the short term we're in for some some difficulties. So we're going to talk about the federal debt ceiling debate, and the crisis that's sort of brewing on there. And uh, I want to start off with a uh, with a video, which will uh, set the mood. But first, let's uh, give thank yous to our sponsor, and that's Patriot Coolers. Actually, for the first time, I actually wanna bring up a little price comparison because I don't normally do this sort of thing on here, but uh, let's bring this thing up. This is Patriot Coolers. Now, one of the things that you might wanna do when you're talking about preparedness, when you're looking at a short-term solution, if the power grid goes down, you're probably gonna be out of luck when it comes to a lot of things, but refrigeration is one of the things that makes modern America possible. The fact that we can keep foods, the fact that we can keep um, uh, you know sort of perishable foods for a much longer period of time, and uh, I brought up Patriot Coolers here because they sell a rotomolded cooler. This is a 50 quart model for 245 bucks, which is a pretty fair price. What I wanted to dig into was here's their here's their model. Uh, you can go to PatriotCoolers.com, just click through coolers. If you use promo code Kyle, you'll get 10 percent off. So that's a, a little something. But I wanted to compare it to a Yeti. There's Yeti's website right there. Uh, they have a slightly smaller cooler, so instead of it being a 50 quart, this is a 45 quart, and uh, it's 325 bucks. It's 75 bucks more, and as I said, you'll save 10 percent using my uh, my promo code with free shipping. So a better deal than Yeti, and uh, in my opinion, it's equally good looking, if not better. It's a, uh, it's got the same kind of color, crowd uh, prices, options like that. You've got the, the same latches. It's a really comparable product. And it's one of those things that you can use for a very long time. These things don't exactly expire. Uh, uh, your food will, though, if you don't have something like this to be able to keep it in there. So uh, by all means, check this sucker out and uh, look at Patriot coolers for some of the other options they have. Like I said, they've got tumblers, they've got uh, the soft coolers, but uh, let's look at the, the hard coolers. If you don't have something that's going to be able to keep your food for a pretty good long period of time, then uh, that's probably suboptimal in a crisis. Folks, throw me a uh, thumbs up in the chat if you can hear what we got going on. I believe that we are rocking and rolling. And we're going to get started right away with a video from one of my absolute favorite movies, something uh, many of you probably have seen. It's called Spy Game. It's a Robert Redford and Brad Pitt movie. One of those things that uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a classic sort of uh, Cold War story. It's one of those things that uh, if if you haven't dug into what really, really good Hollywood writing would look like, this is it. So I'm going to play this for you, and uh, we're going to set the mood. This is the reason why I titled today's show the way I did. All right, here we go. Finally, get to use one of these burn bags. Hold this to you hear otherwise, you didn't see what I put in there feeling a little paranoid on our last day when did noah build the ark lettuce before the rain before the rain and there it is so when did noah build the ark it's before things started going badly. and that's one of the moods uh, that's one of the moods I've been in for quite a long time. It's why I think that developing hard skills is something that's really important as an American. This is a country that believes in self-reliance, that has always believed in that sort of thing. And one of the ways that you contribute to the American spirit is that you look out for yourself, you look out for your neighbors. So this is kind of a public service kind of piece as well. Uh, Last night, I went and uh, had a 45-minute chat with a neighbor that's uh, next door to me. We just met for the first time. Uh, He had a football. He was out tossing around with his kids. I had my kids running around in the front yard, and he and I ended up talking a little bit of politics and throwing a football around. This kind of stuff makes a big difference when things go screwy, okay? It is very important to know the people that are living to your left and your right, maybe what they bring to the table, some of the, uh, the abilities they have. Whether they have a farming background, whether they have a butchering background, whether they are a former military operator, whether they're a medic or nurse, things like this—all this kind of stuff is really important because when the rains come, it's important to have your ark already built. Uh, and that's that's why I like the idea of having a you know a an ability to preserve food. It's why I think that if you don't have a compass, if you don't have a little bit of solar power, if you don't have some battery backups, you're in bad shape. Um, so prep yourself for realistic concerns, you know, having a belt fed machine gun is kind of a cool idea, but it's not one of those things that's going to, that's going to keep you if you run out of power or if it freezes in in Texas, that actually froze, I believe in 2020 pretty aggressively. And I know Ted Cruz got raked over the coals for flying to Mexico for it, but those kind of things, when people look around and go, Oh my God, I, you know, I don't have any water saved and all the pipes are frozen and all the transmission lines are not working. So if you're out of power for a couple of days. Figure out how you can get yourself going for a couple of days, and uh, and some of that is going to be knowing your community and knowing your network. So why do I bring that up? I bring it up because there's an ongoing fight right now, and it's going to continue for the next week or so. We're going to be hearing about it in the news of the American debt ceiling. I want to dig into it long form. I want to cover it. Some of it is going to be what the media had to say. I started over here with PBS. So we're going to actually work from left to right in some ways. And uh, let's let's kind of do a little quick talk. So PBS, this is their clip. Uh, they actually did a transcript and they had an interview with a couple of different people. And so if you're looking on the Rumble channel right now, you can see this transcript. This is going to be Laura Barron-Lopez talking to a couple of different people. Um, and I'm going to just kind of share with you. What are, the, what are the talking points from the left and the right on this situation, and, and where are we going with it? So she says uh, President Biden, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are locked in a high-stakes standoff over raising the nation's debt ceiling. We're going to talk about what that means in and, 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 and just a moment here, okay? But uh, essentially, they have have come to this sort of deadlocked position And the president said that uh, there needs to be a clean increase in the debt limit and has nothing to do with the budget, whereas the Republicans are essentially arguing that if we are not going to tie it to some budget items, then it's a no-go for them. And what are the consequences? So McCarthy says, we lift the debt ceiling. The Democrats need to do their job. The president can't ignore and just refuse to negotiate, which is essentially what's going on. Uh, Biden says, increase it. And that's the end of it. And, uh, and the Republicans are saying, well, we're willing to increase it. However, if we do increase it, we want to see some trade-offs. That's actually the way government's always worked. Um, this new, like, you know, hardline thing. And now they're all going to say something in public, and they're going to do something in private. I'm sure we'll end up seeing a deal on this. I'm sure we'll all lose. That's kind of the way that it works. Everybody loses. And uh, the current Republican Party is a lose a little bit more slowly than the Democrat Party, which is a full-speed run down the hill. All right. Um So they've got this guy from Punchball News. He says, uh, this is kind of fun because I think this is the talking points. He says, uh, is this a serious proposal to balance the budget? This is coming from uh, their analysis of the Republican side. And it says, it both is and isn't because at the same time that they're calling for pretty dramatic spending cuts, they want to bring back a return to spending for fiscal year 2022 levels, which was two years ago. And that is $130 billion less than we're currently spending than the government is currently spending. So that's a dramatic cut. For those of us who are looking at inflation, for those of us who are looking at the way that the government spends its money, and the fact that we've given, what, $120 billion to Ukraine, uh, I think there should be some pain on the Democrat side that is sending all this money, these equipments, all over to a foreign war that we really don't have a strong interest in, at least in my opinion. And we may have some interest in the way that humanitarian situations work, but the the ties between the Russian people and the Ukrainian people and how ugly this thing is getting and how a lot of this money doesn't sound like it's getting to the front lines. And I've spoken to some whistleblowers that probably will be public shortly. They, uh, they've they been over there. In fact, the, the guy that I spoke to, he can, we had lunch at my house. His his discussion with me was there are, um there's almost no equipment. There's almost no military funding that is showing up on the front lines to the Ukrainian people. So even though I have a lot of sympathy towards people that are fighting a war against russia and russia is the historic enemy in fact spy games is one of those great things showing us how uh, the cold war worked um we're we're dealing with a very different world at this point and there's obviously a huge skim off and where that money is actually going is a big question that should be answered in any case 130 billion dollars less in spending sounds like a reasonable position and it should probably be far far less than that we should start trending downward if we want to Try to keep this country solvent, but instead, what we have is these uh, these people talking about it. So they said that their opening position is for debate. They want to force Biden to talk on their grounds about where there is going to be spending cuts, caps, and uh, and other cuts. But they don't want to talk about spending more money or raising taxes. They want to talk about spending money in a dramatic way as much as they can. That is the position that the House is holding. That is the Speaker's position, and unfortunately biden's position it sounds like is that uh he doesn't want to negotiate at all he just wants to put more money in front of them they want to blow out spending because that's what they do uh to be fair that's what trump did under the uh, the COVID policies in 2020 so we did see that on both the left and the right um but reining this in we are no longer dealing with that sort of COVID crisis um and and the artificial problems that that happened when they shut down all these businesses nationwide and, uh, it's, it's about time that we maybe curtail this. but the, the problem with government spending is that once they get used to it, then they want to increase it. Um, uh, government budgets are the same way. Many of you all know that, uh, that they're actually incentivized to spend every single penny that they get so they can get more the next year. And everybody in government that's in a management position, they want to spend more money. They want to see bigger budgets. They want to be able to talk about bigger responsibilities. They want to do more hiring. Uh, nobody ever wants to see it grow less. And so Ronald Reagan is famous for saying something to the effect of uh, there's nothing closer to eternal life on Earth than a government program. And unfortunately, we are dealing with the reality of that. So this is the CNN piece here. I'm sorry, the PBS piece. They're talking about the the fact that uh, this is an unreasonable cut. I want to jump over and do uh, CBS as well. So here's CBS. It says, what happens if Congress doesn't raid the debt ceiling? What you need to know about the showdown between Democrats and Republicans. This is writing by uh, Sarah E. Wall Weiss. And. Here's what we're going to hear. They actually do a pretty decent job talking about this. And what's interesting is that not even the facts can be agreed upon, including when the debt ceiling started when the, the country started pulling against this debt ceiling. So says the, uh, the debate over the debt limit, often called the debt ceiling, is heating up on Capitol Hill, as we just said. Government officials, business leaders, economists are raising alarms, saying if it's not addressed in a timely manner, then it would be disastrous. And and there is some truth to this. We're going to try to talk to the nonpartisan piece of this. I want to also go forward and talk about what a bank says, which I think is also relevant. It says the, uh, the limit is going to be the maximum amount that the United States is allowed to borrow to pay its debt. As many of us know, that debt ceiling continues to increase if the amount of debt, Uh, that the government has hits that limit, and the ceiling doesn't lift, the US would be unable to pay what it owes, and it could default. So most of you probably know this at this point, but the United States government borrows money in order to pay debt interest. What I didn't know is some of that interest and some of that debt is actually debt within the federal government. And that to me Is insane that's what we're going to talk about because i think that is the revelation that most people have no idea about and i certainly didn't know until i started looking into this so this uh, article uh, has a claim the united states debt ceiling is more than 100 years old first established in 1917 with the second liberty bond act and set at uh one one so 11.5 billion dollars prior to that lawmakers would approve every single issuance of debt separately that is whenever there was going to be a bond issue whenever they were going to take a loan the federal government had to actually approve it and Congress would do so individually. Now what they do is they blanket approve the amount of debt, and then all these agencies sort of just increase along their, uh, their own – Interest in their axes which is why we are not individually voting on it we don't see our representatives looking at them as a line item and a lot of that comes down to uh, a lack of accountability this stuff goes back towards that administrative procedures act we talked about 1946 and onward the u.s government and specifically congress has ceded a lot of its authorities to the executive and that's why the executive is uh, kind of overblown in the way that it is that's what these executive agencies do a lot of overreach all right so, uh, national debt ceiling has been raised or suspended more than 100 times, according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. I actually don't know who that committee is. I don't know if that's a federal government agency or not. And I wasn't able to dig into it too much because there's enough here to cover without it. Uh, it was recently addressed with uh, President Trump. They talked about uh, suspending the uh, expiration. They roughly wanted to borrow $6.5 trillion more in 2021. This is all COVID spending. And um, that brings to the current limit of $28.5 trillion pretty amazing stuff. It was in the single digit trillions when I was a kid. This thing has grown 30x in my lifetime, and it's definitely not a good thing. Okay, so they talk about what happens if they do not, and this article continues on, what happens if they don't raise the debt ceiling? That's what everybody wants to know. What's it going to do? It triggers so-called extraordinary measures. Those actually kicked in in January of this year. So we are actually dealing with the so-called extraordinary measures to pay the bills. And so that's why this debt crisis is ongoing and um it's uh, it's making it happen, right? So here we go. What happens if the US defaults? That's what I wanted to scroll down to. Defaulting would likely precipitate a historic financial crisis that would compound the damage continuing um, the public health emergency. So we've got this woman, Janet Yellen, who is obviously acting on behalf of uh, these partisans. She is one of the kind of goofiest people that I've seen as a Treasury Secretary, she she is uh, lampooned regularly. And some of the things she says, inflation will be transient and so on. What we see is, is that she says this could uh, a default could trigger a spike in interest rates, a steep drop in stock prices and other financial turmoil. Obviously, we've seen a lot of these things already happening. Uh, If you're watching what your your thrift savings account looks like, if you are a, a government employee, if you're watching what your 401k looks like, or your personal stock portfolio, many of them are not performing all that well. So kind of interesting. She says uh, our current economic recovery would reverse into recession. I believe that that would be an argument that many people would would say that we are in fact already in a recession with billions of dollars in growth and millions of jobs lost. Maybe so. Um, Moody's analytics said it would be a catastrophic blow if we did that. And Americans would pay for a default for generations to come. Uh, That seems reasonable. Seems very, very likely they say something like 6 million jobs would be lost. All right. So that's CBS and and pbs talking about it and they want to know they're going to kind of cover down here where the the people stand essentially what the democrats are saying is they want to just keep spending and they have all these different things they would like to spend on a lot of them are what we would call entitlements which are strange to me because i don't think anybody is necessarily entitled to anything and yet uh, that is the nature of the piece. Let's go to Reuters, which is a little bit more towards the middle, still center left, I would say. Democrats and Republicans digging in on the debt ceiling. This comes in from uh, about four days ago, and this is a uh, writing by David Morgan and Richard Cowan. Uh, they're going to cover the same sort of things uh, a day after the House of Republicans approved a Republican package. So you need to know the Republicans have advanced a proposal, right? They have advanced something saying, this is what we would like to do. And generally speaking, in negotiations, you make an offer. Um... I actually had one of these funny instances, I had somebody come in and try to buy a, uh, a trailer that I listed online. It was an RV that we actually started the Kyle Seraphin Show in, It's the original location of the of the TKSS, as my buddies call it. And uh, so we have this, this trailer, I put out a price. And then you come in and you wanna buy my trailer and you say, well, what's your best price? It's like, well, I already named it. And so the Republicans have, have thrown out the opening offer. This is the way it's supposed to be. Um, you put out the opening offer and then somebody comes out and says, well, I'd like to counterpropose," And then the negotiation goes back and forth, hopefully in good faith, that two people are are going to arrive at a mutually agreeable piece. And uh, the Republicans have done the opening bid. That's to say that they actually got it through the House House of Representatives. And it was passed on, I'm sure, narrow margins. But still, it would lift the borrowing limit, and it would cut down some of the spending. And that's what the Republicans want to see. And the Democrats only want to do what they want to do and they don't want to they don't want to move anymore. Now, thinking that they have a hard line when this country is so when this country is so divided, it's almost 50-50, right? You've got 50% of this country voting Republican, 50% voting Democrat, the urban areas of this country almost exclusively are, are blue, and the rural areas are almost all red and a lot of the suburbs are red as well. Then you don't have a mandate to come in and just say, I'm going to do whatever I want. You're not able to do that. That's not reasonable. And so they're they're playing a ball game that they don't actually have the strength to play. So the president, this is uh, uh, Mitt Romney, who by no means is a uh, a very conservative individual. He says, the president is the person who now has the ball in his court. That is the most weak passive statement, by the way. That's perfect for Mitt Romney. He's kind of a passive talker. The president is the person who now has the ball in his court. The House has passed a measure. They've got to raise the debt ceiling. It's time for the president to respond other than to say no. So the Senate is where it's going to have to go next, right? And so you have to be able to uh, to mess around in both chambers of our federal government in order to get it on to the president to sign. This is a, a budget uh, proposal. And if they are not going to move forward at all, then you're going to be in bad shape. Uh, this is another Senate Democrat. He's saying the same thing. He says you don't use brinkmanship. Brinkmanship is when you basically walk up to the edge and, and tell people like this is the final edge. You don't start with brinkmanship that may be where you get when you have to do an ultimatum but they don't have the uh, the power they don't have the numbers to do an ultimatum at this point so he says you don't use brinkmanship on not paying our bills to back people into a corner the president should sit down with mccarthy anytime sure but not to discuss paying our bills so you've got a senate uh, democrat there saying he's saying one thing but in fact he's actually backwards he says that you shouldn't use brinkmanship about paying our bills but like this is the way these uh, negotiations go you're supposed to start with an opening offer and uh, once again failing and then you've got i I love how they call joe manchin who is a a sort of like a center-left candidate or center-left uh politician has been like that for a very long time because he has a very red state um but he is a he's a democratic senator and they call him a maverick they used to call mccain a maverick i think that's really funny too um when these when these news organizations start ordaining people with terms like that. That's a funny epithet to have. He says only the president can prevent this from becoming a full-blown domestic crisis. Obviously, that's the case. They have to give some ground. Everybody has to give something. Uh, and unfortunately, like I said, all the American people will actually lose. Probably generations will lose. But it could be much worse if they don't step up. Uh, that being said, the idea of cutting a lot of government cost is something that is near and dear to my heart. I think it's very important, and I think it's something that we should be doing because... Most of you would not notice if the federal government stopped working. And I'm going to give you a pretty, uh, a pretty concrete example of it. In 2018, I guess it must have been December of 2018, I was newly assigned to the surveillance squad at the Washington field office. So I had gotten out of the main field office, and I was transferred out to this off-site, and we were working on surveillance. And I was relatively new to the team. I'd only been there for maybe four or five months. And we had what would they called the a sequester which was to say that we had to keep coming to work, they were going to stop paying us for a little while, and all non-essential government services were suspended. So some of you will recall they shut down national parks, Uh, they didn't have the national parks employees coming in, all the quote-unquote non-essential parts of the FBI didn't come in, so cleaning crews and... I don't know who else was in there, the supply people and stuff like that, like a lot of people were deemed non-essential. And this was all part of that sort of this is well before the COVID essential non-essential worker delineation was made. The only things that I noticed when I worked in D.C. that made any difference was that essentially we had less people on the roads and everything was the same. They were all the same. There was no difference in human beings in America's experience of the federal government's actions you wouldn't know it if most of the federal government didn't show up to work, and then that's also got carried forward. Uh, we, we we ended up not getting paid for one pay period, I think, and people were talking about having go into f- food kitchens. These are people in the FBI that are making on the low end. These are the administrative types We're making you know fifty sixty thousand dollars a year. The agents making between one hundred and twenty and one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a year, and they were talking about not being able to make their mortgage payment. So when you think about the danger of that, the real danger is that we have people in a national security sense that don't have. The, uh, they don't have the savings to even survive without a single pay period, that's bad news. We ended up getting paid a couple of days late. It was non, non-negotiable, big deal. Was it, nothing changed for most of us. And yet there was this big panic And uh, and obviously, you saw a lot of people not showing up to work in 2020 and 2021. A lot of the federal government was doing remote work, which is to say they weren't doing any work because they were the federal government and they barely do any work half the time when they're in the offices. uh, We could go into a long form discussion about the inefficiencies of government. But paring down the federal government in a big way seems like a like a no brainer to me. It's one of those things where it it's. It exists almost always to to continue its own existence. That's the self licking ice cream cone. That is the metaphor that people always use for federal spending. It's that it uh, its literal most number one per- purpose is to keep itself in existence, and it doesn't need it doesn't need to accomplish the mission. There's no there's actually no uh, deliverables to the American people that if we didn't see them that you wouldn't be uh, you know like they wouldn't get paid right. That's the funniest thing about it. Like in in other companies, like let's say you were working in a sales job. If you didn't sell, you don't eat. I've worked in those jobs. Um, if you're uh, working in the restaurant business and you don't have customers sitting in seats, you don't get paid. There's no money. You may not make ends meet at the end of the month. In the federal government, it is a guarantee. All you gotta do is show up on time not be late, not leave early, and then uh, they have what they call the golden eagle comes in and lays the goose egg in your bank account every two weeks. That is a real major problem for most people that have worked in the private sector, and it's something that government employees are terrified of facing, which, you know, it, it's strange to go from the private sector, work in government, I'm back out in the private sector again, obviously, and um, it it wasn't scary at all. It, it wasn't a big deal It because I'd seen this before. It's like there's there's a lot of opportunities. This country is full of them. It just takes some work. I actually retweeted a guy named Lucas Bakken. He's the founder of T rex arms, which is a holster company uh, may or may not be relevant to your life. But he's a young guy. He's younger than I am by quite a bit. And he started a company supposedly with $1,000 with no GED with no college education. And he built it up because he saw a need in the market. And I saw the need as well at the same time. And then he filled that need. He built a product that people wanted, and he's turned it into a uh, multi-million-dollar company. The guy has all the cool toys that you could want if you're, uh, you know, a Second Amendment type like me. He's got belt-fed machine guns. He's got suppressors on everything. He shoots night vision and thermal and all the all the kind of cool stuff that you'd want to go do. He gets to do that all the time. But I'm confident he worked his butt off to get there, and so I begrudge that kid nothing. In the meantime, you got people out there that are talking on him and saying, oh, join the military and get what you want. I will say this, and I tweeted it this morning, and I stand 100% by this. A serious person does not wait for the government to bring them things, whether that's food, whether that's shelter, whether that's security, whether that is weapon systems or training. If you want to be serious as a human being, then I always say this. I used to show up on the SWAT team uh, hits. When I was a paramedic, I used to show up on search warrants. We'd go through the door and they're like, oh, where'd you get this gun belt? It's like I paid for it with my own money. I paid for it because it's it's important for me to have the right tools to do my job. And so I will always suggest that you remember these words. Professionals have professional tools. Whatever your job is, whatever your life is, don't wait for someone to give it to you. Go earn it, go have it, and then you own it and then maintain it like you have it. Uh, people in the government oftentimes will let their vehicles fall apart, will have all kinds of problems with the equipment they're doing. And, and the reason that they do so is because it's not theirs. They have no skin in the game. And that's one of the big problems about government. It's the big difference between government and private industry. Because people who are accountable to a bottom line and investors or themselves, they know. They had to actually lay out money to generate that equipment. It's a reason why I maintain all the things that I have. Um, And I always have, I maintain my tools, you know, I was a kid and I used to leave my dad's tools out. But I'll tell you what, when I started getting my own tools, like they're pretty darn organized, and I don't lose a screwdriver, I've been on five moves with a whole toolkit that I have lost zero tools, because I know where they all go. And I paid for them myself, and I expect them to come on back. So it's worth noting, let's uh, dig into this, this crisis situation this brewing situation. Again, I want to talk about what Wells Fargo saw, I, I pulled this thing up. This is an article they wrote in February. Um, it's attributed to Jennifer Tillman, who's an investment strategist, and Michelle Wan. So, two women writing this about the debt ceiling debate. What's at stake? There's a really interesting graph on here that I wanted to pull up, and I want you to look at it. So, the top line, if you're looking on Rumble, and, and if not, you can always come in here. The timestamp is about 27 minutes in. You can look at this graph, uh, or you can go to Wells Fargo slash Investments dash Institute and uh, and see this this um, this debate. So, you can search for this and find it. So, there's talking about is this a replay of what happened in 2011? Um, The United States debt is actually now, I I think I said earlier, 28.5, but we're actually um, going to hit $31.4 trillion, and that happened in January of this year. So that already happened. So we are already over $31 trillion. It's actually worse than I stated. And what does that mean? If you look at the the, uh, chart one here, it says elevated debt and rising rates take their toll on treasury interest expenses. Okay, so the top line is in blue, and that is the gross federal interest payment, as a percentage of normalized receipts, the bottom one is the marketable debt as a percentage of GDP or the gross domestic product, the total output of the uh of the US uh, production, okay? And what we saw is those those lines basically are far separated in December of 92 as we move down towards the end of the uh of the 90s, they got closer, but they were still separated by a fairly decent distance and they crossed in about 2008, for the first time. And those of us who remember what happened in 2008, we had a, a financial crisis, um, all kinds of issues were were across the board, we saw the dollar drop, we saw people um, lose their homes, we saw all this uh, subprime uh, mortgage crises, all these other kind of pieces. And then it crossed back out, they they climbed out, and we got some separation again, in 2010. This is all during the Obama years, then it crossed again, because they continued to spend. And so our percentage. Um, against GDP, went up, 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 and the um, and the gross federal interest payments, even though they kind of declined a little ways, they uh, they lost ground to the GDP, the percentage of GDP, and so we lost that in about 2000. It looks like 2011, 2012, end of the Obama years. Um, sorry, the second term of Obama, and and it just. Uh, it, it moved on, we, we see this in 2016, basically we got some separation, it's just getting worse and worse, and it gets even worse in 2020, this is obviously under Trump, and right now we have this massive differential where we are very far apart, um, it looks like it got worse under COVID, but it's, it's continuing to stay bad, and this is going to be an ongoing problem because these are now out of their historical balance, these two, this gross federal interest payments versus marketable debt. I think it's something to uh, to consider. I want to read here. It says, likely macroeconomic consequences. So this is midway down the page if you decide to go read it on your own. It says, at first glance, the financial and monetary policy backdrop is less economically supportive now compared with the worst debt crisis in 2011. It means we're in worse shape, less economically supportive, right? And it says the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing was a calming influence in the run-up to uh, that that period of time, ending just after the debt agreement, which was reached that summer, the combined factors led to rapid market deterioration during the third quarter. This time, the debt ceiling discussions are occurring while the Fed tightens financial conditions and the economy seems headed towards a recession. So at that point, they were doing quantitative easing. They were um, basically printing out money. And I think I've got this here. Yeah. So some people are, are familiar with the the term monitored monetary theory. And I just wanted to pull up a quick definition for people to be able to see it. This is coming from Business Insider. So uh, this is under their personal finance section. It says, Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT, is an economic theory that suggests the government could simply create more money without the consequence because it's the issuer of the currency. In other words, it can print money to get its way out of problems. It can print the money in order to pay its own debts. Is that actually realistic? And the answer is probably not, as many of us are experiencing with inflation. So I pulled up a little quick article on inflation as well, because I just think that's also worth noting. So inflation and the fall of the Roman Empire, this is an oft quoted historical lesson, but I think it's worth looking into. This is actually coming from the uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. This is under their economic education section. And what are they, they essentially saying is that at some point in time in the Roman Empire, and let me see if i can actually get the exact dates on here so bear with me for a second there it is um emperor commodus basically had the the roman drachma is it the drachma no the denarius was a was a piece of silver it was about 50% silver it was the 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 actual weight uh, of the coin was 50 percent silver when they increased the the movement I'm looking here for this piece and I can't find it there it is silver percentage all right so silver percentage this is a great graph actually I'm going to hold this right up here so visual debasement of the Roman currency this is essentially what the United States has also felt as we continued to print out money um, we started off by getting off the gold standard that happened what under Nixon and then you move into this so okay uh, the Denarius was the Roman uh, coin. These are the emperors and this is how it went on. Under Nero, which is AD uh, 54 to 68, you got about 90% of the coinage was made from pure silver, which is to say it was a mostly silver coin. Uh, this slowly deteriorated until we get to Commodus, which was uh, about a hundred years later in um, AD 177 to, to 192. And at that point it was about 70%. So they went from 90% silver to 70% silver over a period of about a hundred years. And then things get really bad. So Septimus Severus, this is the next emperor. This goes on for about a 20-year period, drops it to 50%, from 70 to 50. So what took uh, previously 100 years to do, they were able to do in the next 20 years. And so the speed at which they debased the currency increased. And then your last one, Diocletian, goes down and uh, essentially destroys the currency where there's almost no silver in it, it is less than 10% silver, and the Roman Empire did not survive. So the the Roman Empire fell. In some ways, because they overextended, and when they overextended their, their military and they had to be able to pay off all these troops that were stationed in far outposts and so on, and they couldn't maintain their supply lines, they debased the currency in order to pay these things off instead of cutting spending, instead of doing the hard work. And right now the United States is experiencing the same kind of debate and the uh, discussion on the political left is the same that led to the demise of the Roman Empire. This has all been done before. This has been done in many different places, but the Roman Empire is a great example that people always point to of uh, the American experience, and when you look at it, you can see where this is headed. When your money becomes worthless, you become irrelevant on the world stage, and you leave yourself open to conquest, and you leave yourself open to um, to the barbarians basically knocking down the gates, and that's literally what happened. That's That's the barbarians at the gates is a is a concept that comes from the fall of the roman empire the barbarians by the way were people who were non-roman they were bearded like i am Uh, that was not considered to be very fashionable that was actually considered to be a um an uncouth or an uncivilized way of presenting yourself the romans uh shaped so it's funny there's always been this historical swing from um from bearded to not bearded you can actually trace a lot of western society's beliefs about man uh and and also about sort of what sacredness and holiness look like based on men's facial patterns i didn't mean to get into that too much but it it occurs to me and the barbarians were people who literally barber which was to say that they had a beard Um, this is what happens when you spend years studying latin In middle school and high school. That's my my background and that sort of thing. Um, I wanted to continue to discuss this thing under the Government Accountability Office. So the United States government actually has a million of these offices. They have all these different places that you can go and find out information. We spend a ton of money as a country doing self-assessments that nobody reads. So let's read one. Let's read one because we pay for it. This is coming from the United States Government Accountability Office, the GAO. And this article is entitled, or this section of this, uh, this website is entitled Federal Debt and Debt Management. And here's where I think you're going to find something very, very interesting. It says, the issue summary, what we need to know about federal debt and the analysis of debt management challenges, great. Federal debt. There's some things in here, and these graphs I think are really helpful because I'm sometimes a very visual person, particularly when it comes to moving money and math. Someone just said in the chat that I'm a barbarian, 100%. I am pro barbarian. At this point, <laughs> I agree with you all that I welcome them coming through the gates at this point and and, uh, and straightening us up and breaking us into smaller factions. Uh maybe we're all the barbarians. All right, so federal debt. It says when the federal government spends more money than it than it receives, it runs into a budget deficit. This is basics of business 101. If you spend more money than you have, that puts you in a place where you don't uh where you're going to have to borrow the money. To cover the budget deficits, And the government financial activities, including interest payments, because interest payments are a big chunk of uh, what we do with our money. The Department of the Treasury must borrow money from the public by issuing treasury securities to investors. All right. So these are T-bills. These are going to be treasury notes and so on. There's all these different ways that they describe them. And they're based on how long the debt is going to be financed. Federal debt is the total amount of money. That the the federal government owes. This is actually a pretty good tutorial. If you're doing homeschooling, I highly recommend using some of these tools that the government makes available to you. Um, you can teach a lot about why our government is in problems from information that's put out by themselves, and uh, they don't necessarily put a big policy position to it. Even though government is pro government, I think you can uh, you can show your kids, especially those in high school, how this works. Um, so there's two ways that it can that it can handle debt. One is that the debt is held by the public; those are known as investors. This can be institutional investors. This could be um, other countries. We always talk about how China holds a lot of the United States debt. That's uh, one of the good news is It's one of the good pieces of news about our conflict with China is that they do own our debt and they can't exactly call it in. So they are financially and inextricably tied to us when it comes to some of these things. It's one of the upsides. I don't think people necessarily always look at it that way. And then the other thing it can do is it can loan money to itself. I want you to just pause for a moment. I'm going to be looking at the chat here in a moment as well. The government can loan money to itself through a process known as intragovernmental debt. Intragovernmental debt is owed by the Treasury to other parts of the federal government. Take a second to consider how insane that is. That might be one of the dumbest things that our government does right now. It is something that is incredibly dangerous. It loans money from the taxpayer to other taxpayer-funded entities. It's essentially hiding the ball that it is not spending its money properly, that it's run out of money to to operate, and so it is loaning it internally on things that are not necessarily approved, or we've approved more spending than we can handle. So we owe ourselves, We the federal government owes itself money from different ends, and there's got to be some examples of this that we can talk about, and you're going to know what they are. They're going to make sense to you as soon as I tell you. All right, Um, we're going to go down to the graph. This is a graph from fiscal year 2021. A lot of times we have to look in arrears. What it said at that point in time, this is that number I had had previously stated, $28.4 trillion, $28.5 trillion. So here's what's interesting. Three quarters of that debt, 78% is held by the public. These are investors. That's where you would expect the debt to go. These are government bonds. 22% of it was intergovernmental debt, which is to say one quarter... Of our debt, our federal deficit is actually funded by the federal government. You want to talk about a self-licking ice cream cone? There is nothing dumber than thinking about the government loaning itself money that it had to take from us to spend, and that it was already borrowing to to, to do its job. I, I, it's it's almost unfathomable. But here, this uh, this particular document will show us where is that that twenty two percent that we're talking about. How is it broken up? So the debt that's intergovernmental, 46% of it is borrowed by the federal government to fund the federal government from Social Security. If you listen to Dan Bongino's podcast, and I know many of you do because most of you heard my name through Dan, 46% of the quarter of the debt that we have. So half of that, so 11%, let's just do quick numbers. 11% of our deficit is actually... Money that the federal government is taking from our social security program that we pay in with our social security, and it is using for other purposes. 11% of our debt. And I can do some quick math on that. That's almost $3 trillion. $3 trillion of our debt is borrowed from social security. Unbelievable stuff. You can't run a business this way. That's the, there was a movie that was called Dave. Many of you may remembered. Uh, it was one of those great movies from either the late 90s or the early 2000s. Really charming, heartwarming. Uh, you know, a man basically steps in for a president who uh, has a stroke or something while he is uh, having an affair. So that's pretty – pretty. I think that might have been the late 90s because I think it was a, a Clinton thing. But the, uh, the president was this womanizer, and he goes out and has an affair, has a stroke, and then he's out. So they bring a stand-in, this sort of like lookalike. And the lookalike is named Dave, and he pretends to be the president, and he's looking at it, and he was like, you know, he's a good person, of course, and he's like an everyman who's used to running a small business, and he works for an employment agency, and he helps people find jobs. So that's all, you know, kind of sweet and charming. And he brings in his buddy who's like a hard numbers business guy, right? And, uh, and what does the, the buddy do? The buddy goes, uh, I could never run a business like this. This is crazy how is it possible that the federal government is running like that? So they balance the budget basically um, at the table with just a couple of people who handle small business. I don't think it's that easy. I'll be honest. I love that Hollywood thinks it is. Um, I love that Hollywood actually used to think that that was a, a marketable position, a balanced budget, because Hollywood is all in for this leftist position now spending every penny they have. That was 20 years ago. So the left in my lifetime, has gone from how do we figure out how to spend our money on things that we want to how much money can we take from everybody, and it's the billionaires' fault and some other wild stuff. So pretty nutty. But three trillion dollars of our bit of our debt is actually taken out of Social Security. Um, here's another really uh, disturbing number: the next biggest chunk of that, almost a quarter of it, twenty-two percent again, comes from military retirements and military health care. So the United States government is borrowing. Um, half of that amount. So, what does that come to? About a one and a half billion dollars against military retirements and healthcare. And this is the reason why we're screwing over our vets. It looks like too, because they're taking the money from these retirement accounts where they belong. I mean, we've already promised it. People theoretically pay in with their service. Um, as a as someone who works for the federal government, you know, I paid in a certain amount of my salary would go in to to my own retirement account. You pay for your 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 pension right? You pay for it on every pay period. And it was, you know, the government matches it by two thirds or something like that. But some of it comes out of your own pocket. The idea that they're taking that from our military service members, and they are borrowing that to handle other governmental issues. It's really wild. And then civil service, retirement and disability, which is the other piece, that's going to be what I used to do 15%. So if you were to take the amount of money that we pay in for retirements of that of that quarter of the, uh, of the governmental debt, that 22%, and then 15% comes out of civil service. That's going to be all the people that work for the federal government paying into their own pensions. You're looking at, let's see here. Let's do some quick math. So that makes it 50, 60, yeah, almost basically 75% of that 22%. (laughs) So almost all of the quarter of the debt that we are financing out of our government comes from pension plans, whether it be the, the people's pension, which is social security, the military pension, and the civil service, the people that actually work for the federal government. Almost all that money. And if we're talking about 25 or 28, that's almost what we said, $30 trillion worth of debt and 22% of it. Yeah, you're talking about like nine, eight or $9 trillion of it, I wanna say, or just a little bit less than that, maybe $7.5 trillion is coming out of our own pockets from from our own Social Security and our own pension plans. That's crazy. It's a totally crazy way to move money around. If you're uh, not watching, like I said, ch- check out the Rumble channel and look at these things or just go to the Government Accountability Office and look up federal debt and see where it's actually going. It's really mind-blowing. It's a mind-blowing amount of money. And then it says, you know, what percentage of our debt is being held? This is the, uh, the publicly held debt. About 42% of it is domestic investors. That's going to be people in the United States. Um, another 34%, about a third of it is international investors. And then the Federal Reserve which is our banking system, holds a quarter of our debt. It, it boggles the mind to imagine that the Federal Reserve, which most people think of as being a government agency, even though it's not. It's sort of like a non-governmental, governmental-associated agency. When, when you've got 25% of your debt is being held by your own government, and it is borrowing 25% of the debt that it has against things that the government has guaranteed to pay people who work and have to pay into the government... It is the biggest circle jerk you can imagine, and that's why our you know budgetary crisis is what it is. It's really, really weird and really, really gross. Um, there's another thing here. I don't know if they are in fact bipartisan, but I'm going to bring up this thing. This is a a website. This is bipartisanpolicy.org. When I was reading it, it looked like it was pretty decent. It's a facts versus myth. If you people handle things in that sort of foundation, so what I told you was earlier not everybody agrees on when this this um this debt ceiling situation started these guys actually tend to agree with the C- cbs thing i've seen some other stuff that said that it happened in the 1930s um this says you know since the founding of the united states there's always been a federal debt limit that's not true it actually happened after world war 1 so that was the first time that we actually started getting into significant debt on a on a um, a large scale basis where they didn't have to approve it on a 1 to 1 okay and uh, at that point in time then they started moving it and Less and less, the Congress wanted to be responsible for individual debt decisions. And I think the minute that happened, I get it under a war footing, under World War I. Yep, we financed that. Under World War II, again, in 1939, they did another piece where they started borrowing, and they started moving the federal limit. At that time, it was $45 billion, which you should basically multiply by about, I think you have to multiply it by some horrible number. It's the different, whatever, it's maybe... 25 or 30 times is what that would have been, you know, in today's money, but long and short of it is, um, they've got some myths, they've got some facts. This is an interesting little piece. So I can recommend bipartisanpolicy.org. I scrolled through it today. And I thought it was worth looking at. If you want to get a little deeper into it. Um, Let's see, I had another topic I want to cover, I want to just make you aware of it. I think we talked about it earlier. This is not something that was in the show notes. But I think when you talk about building the arc, when you talk about being prepared, this is another thing that we need to be pushing. Uh, This is a daily wire piece. And uh, it's written by Liff Lemehu. I have no idea if I said that correctly. Liff, sorry about that. Uh, this is the future of controversial surveillance program in question as lawmakers probe FBI over abuses. There's a couple of things that are really, really important that are happening in the next couple of weeks. This is one of those things. Okay. They're talking about 702 FISA. This says the debate in Congress has continued over the renewal of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act before it expires at the end of the year. Uh, for the government, the end of the year is September. Most people don't know that, but that's actually coming up relatively quickly. All right. Um, let's see if they can actually say. This uh, This particular section of the of the FISA allows intelligence agencies to obtain online communications from foreign nationals without a warrant. That's correct. Uh, critics have raised the concerns over a lack of oversight of the program, and it allows the communications of American citizens to be obtained without a warrant or due process. That is also correct. So I'm going to just freeform talk about this thing for a second. 702 FISA is one of the most dangerous things that uh, that the U.S. government has the ability to use, and particularly the federal law enforcement apparatus should not have it. We've got to deal with it. And so you need to be pushing your representatives. People always ask, what can I do? How can I move the needle? You need to be telling your reps— it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on that 702 fisa is bad news here's why 702 fisa allows the government to read non-us based foreign intelligence assets emails phone calls whatever touches american phone lines um, text messages and stuff like that the problem is the biggest problem is is that it also catches american citizen stuff in their in their dragnet if you will right and what it when and it certainly does. Those things can be read, no warrant, they're easily obtained. And when you are a law enforcement professional who is looking for espionage, when you're looking for counterintelligence, um, actionable information, overseas spies are interesting in so much as what they're doing. But domestic people who are breaking the law is what you care about when you have a code 1811 job. Uh, 1811 is what we call special agents. They're actually technically known as criminal investigators, and they exist in all branches of the government. They are in the DEA and the ATF. They are in the Marshal Service. They are in the FBI. They are in the DHS. They are in Homeland Security Investigations. They are in ICE and so on. So um, they're, they're actually in all the Office of Inspector Generals. They're everywhere. 1811 criminal investigators, their job is investigating criminals, not looking for information for foreign spies so they can know things. They are interested in locking up people domestically. That's what I signed up to do. That's what those people do. That's what I did when I was doing counterintelligence. And the the analogy that I always give people, and I think it's very important that you understand how dangerous 702 FISA is. The analogy is that if you were a TSA officer, we've all been to the airport, we can all imagine what those people do, and you're given a metal detector, and everybody's got to go through the metal detector. This is the same as being able to capture all emails. If you send people through the metal detector and your job is to stop weapons from getting on a plane and you're not allowed to use the weapon, the, the metal detector to detect weapons, but you are held accountable for weapons that are, that are smuggled in, you're going to use the metal detector. That's what you do. That is the nature of the 702 FISA. It is a tool that cannot be used properly because here's the secret. If you use 702 FISA to identify American subjects, that's called reverse targeting and it is expressly written into the law that that's illegal. And the U.S. government and uh, and the FBI did it something like three million times last year. They say that 10,000 employees have access to it. That's going to be ever. I guarantee it's more than that. Um, it's every federal agent that works on national security. So whether they work on counterterrorism or counterintelligence. And then it's also every single intelligence analyst. It's also all the SOSs, the squad operations specialists. I think that's what they're called. SOS is one of those terms that either means squad or staff operations specialist. But these are Intel type people as well. They work on a tactical basis. When we are talking about 702 FISA, being able to grab all of the information, there is no censoring of it. When I looked into it, I get raw emails. I get names. I get contact information. I get the date and the time when it was sent. There's a position or the, uh, the, the actual database was called DWS, I think, uh, but I don't remember what it stands for. And it doesn't really make a difference data warehousing system or something, you know, innocuous, but end of the day, it brings in all what it brings in and you can search it based on names. You can search it based on all this other stuff. And those are all illegal. If you're looking for American signals or American citizens rather, uh, or what we call uspers, which is to say non-American citizens who just happen to be in the United States, whether they be legal permanent residents or whatever, really, really ugly 702 FISA, reach out to your reps, let them know that this is an unacceptable thing. It needs to lapse. And if you have any questions about that, by all means, you can hit up my buddy George Hill. He's on Twitter at Senior Chief EXW for Expeditionary Warfare. You can also watch our interview with George Hill. I've done it a couple times. But the first interview I have with George Hill, if you go back, you will find out he was a prior NSA guy. He was a uh, intelligence analyst. He was a supervisor in the Bureau for over 11 years. And he's worked on the, the actual implementation of intelligence in the Marine Corps and in the Navy. He was an interrogator and so on. Check out what George Hill says because he thinks it's the single biggest danger that the U.S. government has um, available, and and that is a, it's the single most dangerous tool that is available to the U.S. intelligence community. So consider consider reaching out to your reps. Like I said, it would be very important. I think um, one last little piece here. I think it's I think it's funny. We're going to talk about holding the line. You want to talk about building the arc? Um, apparently, apparently. And this is according to uh, our friend John Solomon at Just the News. uh, This piece was actually written by Kevin Bessler. Uh, It says, lawmakers call for an end to mask requirements for driver's tests in in Illinois. I saw this on on True Social. I had to bring it up. Apparently, there are still some mask requirements that are out there in this country that they are requiring you to do them. Uh, I get that there's some in the healthcare setting. Those may be harder to fight, especially the federal healthcare system. I actually got kicked out of the VA because I wouldn't put a mask on. But when it comes to this, a 16-year-old would refuse to put on a mask. And, she's, and it was a female, so good for her. Um, and it made some of the state reps aware that there was a uh, a mask requirement for doing driver's ed and being able to push past um, you know, the driver's test. Here's where the part, I'm gonna skip down most of the story. You guys can go read it. It's on justthenews.com. You can go through and see it on uh, on True Social. But the part that I thought was most interesting is, let's see if we can find it here okay um requiring drivers this is a quote so quote requiring drivers to wear a mask during the driving test is excessive at best and dangerous at worst few if any drivers will be wearing masks when they are actually behind the wheel of their own automobiles young drivers at this point in time have not worn masks during practice sessions it's not fair to require them to wear a mask if they've never had to wear one prior to taking the test And the thing that is so crazy is the spokesperson from the Secretary of State's office, which came up with this thing, said that it wasn't in fact, here it is, Davis said he called the Secretary of State's office and confirmed that the policy does exist. So there is a policy in Illinois that you have to wear a mask for a driver's test. However, this is the key part. When requesting the written policy, he was told it was unavailable because it was just an internal policy. There's no law. There's no requirement that says you should otherwise be doing this. Um, Very, very weird stuff. But this stuff is ongoing. This is what government overreach looks like. Once it happens, they don't want to give up on it. They really don't want to give it up. And they don't want to see a seeding of power, of money, of anything else. All this stuff is because the self-licking ice cream cone exists to grow itself. And once it's seized on a power, like telling you you have to wear a mask, however arbitrary and uncomfortable and stupid it is, and I know this existed in New Mexico, too. They wouldn't let you come into the uh, the DMV or whatever the heck they call it there, the motor vehicle section. They wouldn't let you come in without wearing a mask, and there's no reason to wear one. It's stupid, but they all liked it. And they all had the plastic shields up and all that kind of thing. Um, pretty gross, pretty disgusting, but it is the nature of the beast at this point. So we need to push back. Draw a red line in the sand and do not accept. You can't comply with these things. You can't comply with mandates that are totalitarian like this and that are attempting to to tell you that they care more about your safety than you care about it. That's absurd. So good for this girl who did this. Good for the person that pushed back. It's one of those uh, pieces. And then I'll just throw a little shout out to, to uh, Ted Cruz who is my senator right now, now that I live in Texas. This is Senate Bill 172, the No Mask Mandate Act of 2023. It's not going anywhere, it doesn't sound like, but this is another thing you can go and rattle your saber about. All Congress people should be behind this. This bill would nullify any existing federal mask mandates, which would be a big deal, especially when we talk about uh, people in the VA and, and any kind of government-funded health care. Uh, it prohibits future actions requiring individuals to wear a mask in response to COVID-19 and other public health emergencies. Specifically, this bill nullifies the executive order that was issued saying that there had to be uh, use of masks on on federal lands and on federal buildings, or in federal buildings, rather. The It would uh, strike down the emergency order issued by the CDC, coming from January of 2021, requiring its use on public transportation and conveyances. If you don't want to have to have the uh, the federal government come after you and make you wear a mask on an airline, on a bus, on a train, if there's Amtrak people that listen to this, uh, you know, these are all possibilities that could come back. Just because they got knocked down and it was struck down a court doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a law to stop it. Um, I'm not generally in a favor of the federal government acting in a global capacity. But when it comes to limiting its own authority, that is the greatest thing that we can be doing. So I would suggest to you that you support this bill. It was introduced in January. We're now a couple of months away. Again, it was uh, sponsored by Ted Cruz, and it was in the Senate Committee for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. These are not the, the, the big names that you're gonna hear. This particular committee is not one of the big sexy ones like weaponization. It's not about, you know, the judiciary or oversight or all that stuff. But this is really, really important governmental stuff, limiting the spread of this governmental cancer, trying to be in your life. Super important. I really would um, suggest that you guys get behind stuff like that. So reach out to your senators and let them know that this is something that you want them to take on. Uh, that being said, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to The Kyle Seraphin Show. Some of you have been listening live in the chat. I want to say thanks to DSTS and to... Uh, Mima to uh, Patriot, LK, and especially Eric uh, Jason, who got here early and was having some trouble, it sounded like. Thank you all for joining us, being in the chat. Uh, Really appreciate you guys being here live and watching the show. Folks, if you are uh, listening, you can all hit the subscribe button on Rumble. If you are listening on the audio after the fact, you can obviously find us on Apple and on Spotify and iHeartRadio. One of my best buddies listens on Spotify, so I appreciate that. Sounds like Spotify also has five-star reviews, so if you want, you can always go to the five-star review there and uh, cue that thing up. We do appreciate it. If you do leave us a five-star review, I will get to them, and I will try to read as many of them as possible. I've got one right here in front of me. Let's see here. This comes from, obviously, a government employee, someone who works for the Bureau of Land Management by the name of T.P. Kansu. By the way, we also learned that these uh, some of these, these uh, names are auto-generated by Apple. So uh, TP Kansu the um, says, government corruption, this is a great podcast. We at the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, always said they arrive to the level of incompetence. Those that screw up always move up at the BLM. And our SES, that's the senior executive service, so usually the top person in office, Uh, worked from home for three years, we could never get on the phone when we needed. Uh, We do appreciate that five star review TP. And uh, thanks so much for leaving one folks. Again, if you want to leave one on Spotify, sounds like there's actually a space for those as well. you can leave us a comment if you are actually in the live chat right now and you want to leave the live chat and send something there in the comment section. I think that boosts the algorithm as well. Sharon, thanks so much for jumping on with us earlier, Sharon Black. And uh, folks, I will see you all again on Wednesday. Many of you are used to seeing a a, uh, a long-form interview on Mondays. My guest was uh, pulled away with some urgent medical work that had to be done, and we're going to get either a medical doctor talking about Fecal transplants and uh, treatment of COVID and also the the treatment of autism, which I think will be fascinating for you. It has to do with uh, FDA overreach and some of the malfeasance that goes on with that agency. And uh, I've also got a federal whistleblower a guy by the name of Mike Benz in the queue. And so we'll get them on either like Wednesday or Friday of this week. So we're switching the order around a little bit. Thanks for your uh, your tolerance of that, and uh, we do appreciate it. Like I said, I'll see you again on Wednesday, and uh, again, 9.30 Eastern Time is when we go live on Rumble. For all of you who joined us from dark to light, thanks so much for joining us, too. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Seraphin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Seraphim.